This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Einstein and Gogo for 2015. Can you believe it? The years are flying. I'm getting older. My crew is getting younger in looks. Dr. Crystal, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's so lovely to be back in the 3 Triple R studios. I know. I get a bit itchy over the summer whenever <laughs> I see something that I want to express my opinion on. And it's just basically my wife. And she, yeah, sure. That's great, honey. Dude, that's what Twitter's for. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. I loved it this morning. I walked in the door and I was hit with the, the smell of passion that emanates from the Triple R studios. <laughs> that was uh, Chris KP's BO, I think. Uh, good morning, <laughs> Chris KP. The smell of passion is such a, <laughs> such a nice, uh, anal- what is it? A me- it's a metaphor, isn't it? It is. Dr. Jen? I was actually thinking it was his dog blanket that he was threatening <laughs> yeah. to bring in because it was so cold in the studio. It's cold. It's a bit woofy. Yeah, so <laughs> yes, it is a bit woofy. Yeah, um, good morning. Good morning. I, I like Crystal. I'm just damn excited to be here. We've missed this place. I'm very excited. I, I actually, I went to my local hardware store on the way here this morning just just to get the feel, you know, get, my, <laughs> get in touch with the people. Couldn't find what I wanted. Walked out. Um, it's too and big. you came here instead. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, it was all good. Uh, now, we're gonna, we've got a massive show for you today folks we've got quite a few guests we've got four guests two of them are on the rv investigator which is a whopping big ship that chris kp drooled over and and dr fiona's husband terence actually was on when they were building it over in uh, hong kong harbor or somewhere i think it was stowaway singapore singapore um and it's down in the southern ocean about 60 61 degrees south which is damn cold mm almost to Antarctica, and hopefully we're going to get a live cross to there at about quarter past, so that'll be cool, but before we do that, we're going to catch up on some news. What's been happening, Dr. Crystal? Well, there was a lot of stories over the summer that I thought were quite interesting, but the one that caught my eye was a, a news story about the fact that scientists have unboiled an egg. <laughs> and I was like, what? You can't do that, because I've been using that phrase for quite a while. <laughs> you can't unboil an egg. Yeah, or you well, can't uncook an egg. Well, according to scientists at the University of California, Irvine, who got a helping hand from some research at Flinders University in South Australia, oh, yeah. they have looked at this incredible way of being able to actually restore order to the proteins in an, found in an egg um, after they've been cooked. Because, you know, an egg's basically just a, a pot of protein, and when you cook it, the proteins inside become all disorganized and tangled and and they lose their shape because proteins are these big three-dimensional molecules and they're quite exquisitely and beautifully folded up and so and the weight and their shape actually informs how they work and how they function and if you disrupt that you know, by heating them up for example in boiling egg you know the proteins no longer work and, and we can digest them a lot easier and that's how food and cooking helps us but how do you restore order to those proteins and that's a big question because it has implications not just for cooking but also for how we develop drugs for example that are made of proteins or you know biofuels or so many others of areas of biotechnology or all around the shape and form of proteins so what they did was they got the um they boiled an egg literally for 20 minutes and um and 20 like, minutes hard boiled, hard, hard hard boiled. <laughs> no yeah. messing do not try this at home folks <laughs> and then they took the egg whites which are um you know, you know protein and they um sort of uh soaked them overnight in a solution of urea and urea is a compound that's found in urine and, and other places but you know it's a, it's it's um it basically uh sort of <laughs> put all okay, okay so, so far this sounds like yeah just someone mucking around in in the, in, the, in the garage. So I bought the egg for far too long and then I peed on it. Yeah. <laughs> this is where it gets interesting. I don't know what you do in your garage, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I don't 
took that in mind. Anything I could think of. <laughs> but basically, putting egg white, turns it back into in, the egg white in this solution of urea, turns it back to liquid, and basically it kind of um, unfolds all the tangled egg proteins, but it doesn't refold them. So, th- so what? Th- so to do that, that's where they reached out to these researchers at the university, um, at Flinders University in South Australia, to use their vortex fluid device. Oh yeah, nice. And they put these proteins in the vortex fluid device in the back of the DeLorean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which essentially, um, it's a vortex in that it whirls things around. So it whirls these unfolded proteins in solution, in liquid, into this really thin layer, sort of the 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 width of a human hair and it kind of um sort of spreads them all out and allow and and controls the reaction that happens to um to refold them and allows them to do it in their own personal space so does that mean that it's that once they sort of spread them all out again that the that those proteins have a a natural slash chemical affinity to reform the way they were pre-boiling? Or is there some sort of active approach that makes that happen? It's an active chemical reaction, but it's done on a scale that allows them to sort of control it through... And so by changing the force and the speed at which they sort of whirl the proteins out mm-hmm. and, and, and in using this uh, vortex fluid device, it, um, <laughs> it controls the way that they, that they refold. And so right. at the moment, it's done at a very small scale. So when scientists have unboiled the egg, they haven't actually put it back in the shell with the yolk and everything like that. But they have demonstrated a new way to restore order to proteins, which is a massive um, uh, area um, for being able to make a huge difference in how we develop drugs and for the production of proteins on a larger scale. Um, So at the moment, the challenge is how you take that small-scale experiment and make it big. So they're now building a bigger vortex fluid device. I was going to say. At Flinders University. But it's a fantastic example of how uh, technologies across the globe, this is a collaboration between California and Australia, um, and they saw this device was being used for other chemical reactions and went, hey, we could do that with proteins. And so it's a fantastic example of how researchers are working internationally to solve big problems. Very cool stuff. Dr. Jean, what do you got for us? Well, I thought we'd start with the Antarctic theme, get onto it early, and talk about Lake Vostok. One of my personal favourites. That's right. So this lake, you know, it's under three and a half kilometres of ice in the East Antarctic um, ice sheet. And the idea is, well, we know that it's been cut off from the rest um, of the world for about 15 million years. Mm. It's really cold, like really, really, really cold, completely pitch black. Um, under incredible high pressure. So the idea is that might, if we could get into it and work out what lives there, we might get some ideas about what it would have been like really early on Earth, even other planets, who knows. But, of course, it's quite hard to get mm-hmm. through that much ice. So some Russian scientists first managed to breach the lake in February 2012 after years mm-hmm. of drilling. And a lot of controversy, too, because yeah. a yeah. lot of people didn't want that to, to occur. No, absolutely. We did a lot on that at the time, and it was very controversial, and the Russians said, yes, Okay, we, we do it anyway. Duh. Yeah, I mean, it's been a really long... Yeah, it's a long ongoing saga because the the amount of money, time, effort, mm. invasiveness to, mm. to try and get there, how do you weigh that up versus what we may or may not find out if we do it? But the problem was this, this work done in 2012 was really um, controversial because among a whole lot of other stuff that they found, they came out and said, well, we found some DNA of a completely unidentified, unrecognised bacteria. But... It's probably contamination because what happened was when they drilled down, they had to use kerosene to lubricate the drilling and it turned out that most of the samples was actually just contaminated with Mm. the kerosene itself. So we may have found Which is exactly why people didn't want them to do it. it. Exactly. And why uh, I know there was a lot of stuff from NASA and other groups about how they deal with these problems for, you know, Mars and so forth. And they said they should have the the exact same quarantine standards for Lake Vostok and they absolutely did not do that. And incredibly ridiculous 
reports that years and years and years of work and so much money came out saying, well, we found out that what we did contaminated our sample anyway. Mm. You know, pretty yeah, disappointing. Yeah. Yep. But then, two weeks ago today, they've managed to do it again. They used the same borehole for the first 3.4 kilometres, then they diverged off into another borehole. Two weeks ago today, they managed to uh, get to the lake again, and this time, because they had a whole lot of information about the exact uh, exact depth and pressure of the lake, they knew exactly how slowly they had to retract the drill bit, mm-hmm. so you wouldn't get what's called the piston effect, which is whereby stuff just kind of shoots straight back yep. up into the borehole. So they've done it this time. They say they've got an absolutely pristine sample. Hmm. They'll have it back and be able to analyse it in May, and obviously they're hoping that they will find out some pretty well, incredible why, stuff about why May? what's down there. That's a long time away. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe the samples are on a ship somewhere. I don't know. Yeah, they probably have Who to analyse them chemically very carefully, though, too, in small quantities. I guess that maybe they're not coming back for a while either. Yeah. The interesting thing is, as you mentioned, mm. that it's very cold down there, but of course it's a liquid lake. Mm. So there is, the, I mean, there's thermal aspects to it as well mm. from the ground below the lake yep. and it keeps it in a liquid state. It's mm. not fully frozen. Which so. is, inc- I, I find hard to fathom that it can be liquid mm. under three and a half kilometres of ice. Well, it's an insulator. Yeah, it's mm. amazing. But, very you know, I, I for one do find it very confronting that you do you know all of the the complications around this work but i can't help admitting i will be fascinated to see what they find oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because no matter how deep we go we find freaky stuff mm. and the freakiest stuff uh is not that much different to us mm. when when you look at its actual genetic profile you mm. look at some you know the lantern fish and some of those things yep. they're not that much different to us <laughs> you think geez that's weird <laughs> it looks weird 15 million years is a long time oh, yeah. to yeah, evolve in isolation which is why we should be very careful mm. very what careful. we introduce it is it is yeah. just a sci-fi we were, uh, way to then again don't be careful by the time the arctic all melts and stuff all that stuff will be released anyway so if there's anything freaky there Let's be forewarned. <laughs> be forewarned. Yeah. Be, uh, be forearmed. Uh, Chris Cappy? Uh, I, I was going to talk briefly about crying. Um, I don't want to bring you down <laughs> the first show of the, uh, of the year. Uh, but, well, the thing is that we, I mean, we've all experienced tears for a variety of reasons. Uh, wind in your face, um, great emotion, whether it's positive or negative. Um, you Australia know, winning the uh, Asia World Cup. I, I did get a little bit weepy. <laughs> um, I'm fine now. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, and, and generally speaking, it's something that, you know, uh, specific misery aside, we, we assume is going to happen, you know, and it's fine. But there are many people for whom it doesn't happen very easily, uh, and most of the time the tears on your eyes aren't a matter of crime. They're just tears on your eyes, and they're essential. Um, so what do you do about it? If you can't make tears, and, and by the way, you're feeling like you want to... You're getting that weepy feeling already. <laughs> I'm making myself tear. Oh, really? Seriously. It's weird. I, <laughs> something about eyes, I get all itchy, teary. Anyway, you can't I'm wear contact lenses. Exactly. You can't you wear can't contacts. Um, there's a lot of things you can't do, but you just generally... You've got to put liquid on your eyes. You just mm-hmm. have to have it there and so there are eye drops you can use and you know there are various different formulations that they last for longer and all that kind of thing but it's still eye drops on your eyes and it eventually evaporates and it's a pain in the backside however the people at Oculeve, um, which is a Stanford Uni-backed, um, I presume a spin-off of some sort, um, have produced a terribly exciting thing. It's an implant uh, because the thing is, most people who have trouble producing enough tears have got the basic physical structures. They've got all the ducts and everything, and they're just not actually getting their lacrimal glands, you know, triggering tear production. So basically what this does is they make a little incision around your eyebrow, they insert this weeny little, you know, I don't know how long, but sort of, you know, um, a few millimetre long implant um, up against your lacrimal gland, they sew it back up again, and at the push of a remote control button, so conveniently there aren't wires coming out of you, <laughs> um, which would look awesome, but conveniently it's wireless, they can trigger 
this thing to basically send an electrical impulse into your lacrimal gland and you start crying um, or you start producing tears anyway and it can be done you know with you know whatever it can be done it's done wirelessly you could do it remotely in theory in theory I could make someone else cry <laughs> but, that's, but, that, but that's brilliant because there's a lot of um, congenital genetic disorders exactly. where young children exactly. don't produce tears and yeah. so you mm. know their parents have to do that for yeah, them every day really and it's very confronting for a child to have someone you know, holding your head back putting drops in your eye and that kind of thing but if you could program it wirelessly to, to give them a, a tear <laughs> duct uh, update every six hours that would be amazing yeah. and I'm immediately thinking Hollywood how much easier will it be for you know to cry on camera <laughs> yeah to cry um, on camera <laughs> <laughs> oh finally if we can do it with actors um, the really cool thing in my mind uh, is that they're, they're actually looking at, um, at being able to charge it up using induction systems so you're not again plugging into anything you just stand next to the right sort of coil series and bang off it'll induce, yeah it'll induce a, uh, a current and charge it up for you Wait, it sounds very good it sounds very good well look uh, I'm going to a couple of things I learnt over the summer very quickly uh, one according to my wife because I love summer fruits can't get enough and according to my mm. wife uh, she, uh, to quote her your constitution cannot handle that much fruit Mm. I thought that was quite rude. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I don't, no, I, I don't think so. I could eat raspberries forever. Yeah, I just Me kept too, eating. Kept I want to know what's happened in your house for, oh. to make that, that conclusion. <laughs> it was rough. Don't ask. You know, I, I used to joke years ago on the show about being a simple guy and liking when the petrol thing went faster than the dollars thing. Yeah, Now I'm thinking that's not a good thing. No. No, no cool Anyway, so yeah. it shouldn't happen. Uh, tumbled some rocks over the summer. Oh, I don't know okay. if people have ever done that. Did it yeah. when I was a kid. My son got one off the Santa Claus and uh, we... Um, tumbled some rocks amazing get on board if you can do that folks and uh, the big one remember last year I said we were going to do more on climate this year mm-hmm. which we're going to start off very soon on the show but I thought I'd better put my money where my mouth is so this Wednesday I'm very excited I'm getting four kilowatts of solar panels hooked onto my roof nice how bloody good is that that's very cool awesome. and you know what I'm telling people though so, I mean the term solar energy I don't like it I mean this is a fusion source this comes from the sun <laughs> I'm getting fusion power installed this week that's what I'm telling everyone um, so folks if you've got solar panels yeah. don't don't say solar it just sounds it sounds crap say fusion because everyone knows that's clean totally clean (laughs) (laughs) so i have a fusion source being installed this wednesday four kilowatts should take care of my fish tanks (laughs) (laughs) it's a start it's a start but you know what can you do so uh interesting but uh and i did my famous tomato experiment this year too where i plan a whole lot of different types of tomatoes and work out which one works best for our climate in our suburb which one does apollo Oh really? <laughs> didn't come out. It didn't come out that way four years ago. So things are shifting. Mm. In fact, the one that won four years ago, it went crap. So I don't know what's going on. I hope you kept detailed records of, um, you know, rainfall, yes. temperature, <laughs> yes. humidity. Yeah. yeah, it is a complex system. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course I did that. <laughs> It didn't rain Good. at all, and it was bloody humid. Yeah. <laughs> Being that it is, again, the hottest year. 2014 yeah. was, again, the hottest year on record. Look, I asked Andrea from the bomb to do all that, so I'm assuming she'll have that data in a couple of weeks' time. For your garden. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Nice work. All right, folks, we're going to take a break, uh, play some music for you. Hopefully, during that uh, period, uh, one of our good friends, uh, Robin Schofield, will be calling in from somewhere near the Antarctic uh, border, uh, in, well and truly inside Antarctic uh, Treaty waters. So, um, hopefully... That that call will come through via satellite. Here's some tunes for you, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Three. Triple. Ah. 
Well, folks, we're back. Uh, we're going to shorten that track a little bit. That was um, Winterbourne, uh, Steady My Bones. Great track. Um, we do have on the line uh, Robin Schofield from Antarctica, but I, I should say this is a satellite phone call, so the, the volume might be a little low, so you're going to have to bear with us. Robin, can you hear us? I can hear you. I hope you can hear me. We can. We can hear you quite well now. It's fantastic. Now, tell us first of all, um, Dr. Robin Schofield, where, whereabouts are you physically at the moment? We are with Cross 64 South, so we're um, in well in the water uh, in the Australian sector. So we're 104 degrees east. Wow. So I undersold it. I told everyone you were at about 60 degrees south, but there's quite a big difference in four degrees. Now, what's the temperature down there at the moment? Because I understand that um, the vessel you're on, the RV Investigator, which is an Australian-owned um, research vessel, is it's brand spanking new, and they're doing some of the cold water or cold temperature tests down there to see how it's functioning. What, what, what's it like? Yes, this is the first remote voyage. For RV investigator, and we have, I think the air temperature now is below the end, and the water temperature is the same. So that we're, we're doing all, um, these tests, and the um, everyone's very happy with how it's performing. It's Fantastic. Very nice, um, asset. Now, I understand from uh, one of my colleagues here, Chris KP, who, who had a bit of a tour of the vessel last year, it has a lot of fancy um, stabilisation equipment. Is, is it a smooth ride? It, it's um, very good. I, we haven't had really rough seas, and it's, and it's very, very well. Um, it's been rough, and we've had a little bit of mess, but I think that, that goes with the Southern Ocean. Um, been fantastic. It's the dynamical um, system has been working really well and everyone's very happy. Fantastic. Now, you're down there to do some atmospheric work, which you've talked about on the show before. Tell us, what's the plan over the next few weeks for your research? Well, I've been involved in um, balloons, uh, meteorological balloons, and I've got a few profiles as we're coming down here. Well, we've got another two weeks before we return, and we will, um, we're trying to get an idea um, of the, the ice and, and aerosols down here. Zoran is going to speak in a moment about the, the aerosols. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's exciting, and we're just testing... testing um, this is how we can possibly use this vessel in the future. It's very exciting and learn more about this uncharted territory. Yeah. Well, how did you do it in the past? I mean, what, what was the, um, the, the possibility for getting these sorts of measurements in the past? Well, Zoran will talk in a moment about the aerosols, but this is the first time that we can have the instruments um, in this area so we haven't been reasonably blind and in, in era to that mm. now in terms of um, before we hand over to, to Zoran I just wanted to, to check the, the sorts of things you're looking at and your team's looking at I mean the last time we spoke I think you were looking at um, some of the uh, materials that affected uh, stratospheric ozone, and, and I know many of those were actually being generated in the northern hemisphere and then ending up down south. And it was a good location to look at these. Is that is that still the sort of the plan to look at those particular contaminants? 
I was looking um, previously at his role in, in position, so that was also like a surface process than, than the ozone stratospheric ozone chemistry. Um, here again, I'm, I'm interested in, in the tropospheric processes, um, in particular what, what's going on with, um, with clouds and, and the aerosols down here uh, in this we. We, we're wanting to learn a lot about the, the climate implications of, of these aerosols and clouds in this region. Um, it's one of the largest biases in climate models, and, and so we hope we can get a handle on that a little better by doing these observations. Mm. It's fantastic. That, have you been down that far before, Robin? Is this your first time heading so far south? Well, it's the first time I've gone across the 60 um, South Barrier, I believe. Um, is it, um, Neptune is, we're going to meet him this afternoon for all the people that have, need to have an initiation of going across the 60 South. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really do, do they dunk you in the ocean or something? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, 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 it's my first time, so I'm going to find out. Well, because I hear they dunk you in the ocean for 30 seconds. Um, it should be fun. Now, I have to ask you, I mean, you're, you're in a part of the world where there's no, you know, for someone like me who's a bit of an amateur astronomer, there is no, um, no issues um, with looking at the night sky down there. Is it, is it clear skies and, and is it amazing? We have had an awful lot of sea fog and we haven't haven't been able to see the sky very much. We woke up this morning to um, sun and and that was second and there was an iceberg on the horizon, so pretty amazing. But no, it's a pretty cloudy place, so oh. Well, hopefully things will clear up and you'll get to see the amazing view down there because um, just the aurora and so forth will be extraordinary, I would expect, from from your particular latitude. Now, Robin, I might get you to hand over that ginormous sat phone, which I'm imagining is about the size of a backpack, um, to Zorin, if you wouldn't mind. Um, we are actually talking on a very normal um, phone. We have our room, so it's not not very big. But I will hand over it to Sorin. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that was Dr. Robin Schofield, who is um, from the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne, and currently at 64 degrees uh, south latitude on the RV Investigator. Zorin Ristovsky is a professor at the International Laboratory for Air Quality and Health at Queensland University of Technology. Zorin, can you hear us? Yes, thank you. Zoran, tell us a bit about what you're doing down there on, on the vessel. Yes, so uh, I'm, I'm sort of leading a team looking at the aerosols. Mm -hmm. So what are aerosols? The, the tiny, tiny particles that uh, we are analyzing. We're looking at the sources of these particles, so where, where they come from in the Arctic. Why are they important is that every cloud droplet, every fog droplet, has to start its life as a tiny particle of uh, 50 to 60 nanometers in size. That's one thousandth of the diameter of the human hair. So every, every cloud, every droplet starts as this particle. So we are actually chasing them, looking at them, trying to see uh, what, what the concentration is, size, and we're interested in where do they come from. 
what what generated these ladder soils in these really really clean conditions here. Mm. And and what what sort of equipment do you use? I mean, Robin mentioned she um, uses some of the the uh, inflated balloon scenarios where you get them right up into the the stratosphere and so forth. They're using using similar technology. No, we uh, well the great thing with the uh, investigator is it has two dedicated uh, oratories. So one uh, in the bow of the ship, all the way in the front, and one little bit further. And both laboratories are full of equipment, different spectrum analyzers, mass spectrometers, and particle sizers, etc., etc., which uh, analyze different properties and aspects of particles, more or less looking at the at the very detailed composition of the atmosphere. That's what the tasks of the labs are. Mm. And and what what do you expect to find? I mean, you you must have some sort of indications of of what you're going after down there. Well, uh, what you're looking at is actually some measurements that uh, Robin and her team did, uh, was it two years ago, 2012, and trying to now detail and much, uh, much better equipment and then trying to confirm those results and actually see if the main source of the particles in, in the uh, Antarctic region is actually from the free troposphere. So from way above the, the, uh, the universal layer, uh, that the particles get uh, entrained down to the lower levels, and 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 that's the main sort of looking. At, is that the main source of, of particles, or there are some other sources down here that can produce the particles? We don't know yet. Mm. So, are you going to have to undergo the same uh, south of sixty degree ritual that Robin is uh, looking forward to this evening? Yes. You <laughs> 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 go more than sixty degrees north, but never. Never 60 degrees south, yes. So we're really looking forward to that, yes. Yeah, it's interesting. So, so you've... Lots of stories waiting for us, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. So you, you've been up 60 degrees uh, north. I mean, is, is it a lot different? I mean, is, it, is it a similar scenario, similar temperatures and similar environment? Uh, it's fairly different. I've been up to 87.5 degrees north. Wow. So that's 250 mm. kilometers from the North Pole. It, 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 the difference is that the North Pole is, is ocean, so there's no land. Mm. While here we've got a big, big continent. Uh, so, yeah, it's a bit, a bit, uh, I think it's a bit colder here, yeah. likely. I have to say, 87 and a half degrees, you're only a couple of degrees off. What, what stopped you? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, well, too thick ice. Two days. Fair enough. For no, no specific reason, yeah. Yeah, look, Zara, thank you very much for chatting with us today, and um, we wish you and uh, Robin very safe travels down there. I know it's a it's a um, it's a dangerous environment to be in, but you're on a very big ship, which is uh, several oh, hundred meters. How, how big is that ship? Hundred meters? Uh, the the ship's uh, ninety three point five meters yeah. long. Yeah, but it doesn't look that big in the storm at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's true. Well, you guys take care down there, and we'll get a bit of an update from you, perhaps. When you're when you're back and see how the research is going. Thank you very much for, for speaking with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Have a good day. Uh, that was Zoran Ruskovsky, who is a professor at the International Laboratory for Air Quality and Health at Queensland University of Technology, and Dr. Robin Schofield, who is from the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne, both down there deep into the Southern Ocean in Antarctic waters at, uh, I think they said, 64 degrees south. So have a look at that on the map, folks.
there's not much there. <laughs> I so want to know what their initiation's going to oh, be. We will find that out. I will email Robin and I'll find out um, before next weekend mm. what the initiation is, but I suspect it's going to be cold. Yeah, well, <laughs> how could it not be? Yeah, so, you know, you, you can imagine. I, I just hope it's a dunking. I mean, you, it'd have to be a dunking. It's quite it? a long way down to the water. Yeah. It is. <laughs> it is. Oh, they'll find a way. Oh, they'll find a way. Anyway, uh, some great Australian science going on down there um, in Antarctic waters, folks. We're going to take a break for some music and uh, an important station announcement and then we'll be back with another guest who will be live in the studio um, a bit warmer barely I think. <laughs> yeah. all right we'll be back in a moment three triple e. That song was called All Our Exes Live in... Uh, sorry, it was by All Our Exes Live in Texas. I can't read my own handwriting. It was called Tell Me. Um, Texas. What is that? Exes Graveyard. Anyway. Uh, now, we did have a call just a moment ago uh, with regards to my telescope comments on the RV Investigator. Mm-hmm. Sounds like something Arnold Schwarzenegger would be running. Anyway. And uh, about it being sunny the whole time, but actually they're not quite that far south, so it's probably more like Melbourne in winter. Um, you know, relatively short. Uh, oh, sorry, Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. It's still, still enough, enough night mm. to get out there and no pollution. Well, minimal. Anyway, uh, in the studio is James Wistock. He is the director of the ARC Centre of Excellence in Advanced Molecular Imaging down at Monash University. Welcome, James. Hi. Now, um, you guys are, must be you know, salivating down there at the moment because you're in the process of installing a whopping new electron microscope. Tell us, why is this new electron microscope so special? Because, you know, we're going to say everyone's got one. Well, <laughs> not quite like this. So this is, a, this is an FEI Titan Cryos. Yep. And what it allows us to do is to look at biological, um, if you like, the, the proteins, which are the machines of um, biology, in unprecedented detail. And so, um, you know, typically when people want to understand how proteins work, they use mm. things like the synchrotron and solve yep. um, crystal structures. And But the problem is, is not everything crystallizes. So basically, if something doesn't crystallize and it's big and complicated and you want to understand how it works, microscopy is one approach and in the last two or three years basically um these microscopes have got to the point that they're just incredibly powerful the cameras for example are more sensitive than film which is extraordinary Mm. Um, and also that the optics are are, are such that basically we can actually use these to actually really start to look at you know where amino acids are in proteins um, in in, in great detail Mm. and that allows us to understand things which are very mobile which change in shape and that we can't use crystallography for Mm. Now, I remember back in, in the days when I, I did a bit of SEM myself, uh, scanning electron microscope work, and, you know, someone would chuck in a butterfly wing and get really excited, and, you know. But, but this is a different scale we're talking about here, isn't it? I mean, how, how far down can you go with this type of instrument? Well, we can, we can see the shapes of proteins um, and in, in incredible clarity, particularly compared to the, um, uh, where we were five to ten years ago. And so basically, uh, in technical terms, we're looking at these things maybe at the three to four angstrom resolution range. Now, that's not good enough to basically necessarily see, you know, individual atoms, but we can start to sort of piece together, you know, how, if you like, the amino acids are positioned and, 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 and how, if you like, um, um, broadly the, the, these molecules look. And so 
So, for example, I mean, classically, um, for electron microscopy, it was used for very, very big proteins, yeah. and also the size of things we can look at has come down. So basically, we, we're looking at um, molecules that five years ago, people would have laughed at um, the possibility of looking at them. Mm. Now, explain to me how, how the actual microscope works, because you've used the term electron a few times. How do you use electrons to take an image? Most people will be familiar with a normal light well, optical microscope. It's, it's the same, exactly the same principles. And so basically, you're, you're, using, you're using electrons, which basically, um, in, 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 instead of photons or x-rays and so on and so forth, um, but one of the great things about electrons is you can actually um, measure what we call the phases actually when we actually collect the data and that actually allows us to that gives us um, um, unprecedented information about if you like calculating the um, original structure that gave rise to um, mm. that shape mm. yeah. Crystal? Oh, I think one of the most fascinating things for me is just the fact that we're looking at stuff in its natural kind of state. In that, that, you know, we're not just looking at the butterfly wing, we're not just looking at the cell, we're not just looking inside the cell at, you know, all those little organelles mm. and stuff. We're actually going all the way down to looking at that protein in that moment in that cell and some of the images of of the these these structures that we've never actually been able to physically look at before i, th I think i think that's that's the scale at which we're now now down to even below that to the to the molecule level is just is just absolutely sensational mm. now, now james presumably i mean with that is you, you get certain bits of information out of this electron microscope but uh, i can imagine you have to couple that with other instruments as well to get the full picture uh, you guys presumably have a whole suite down there in in the center I mean, it's called the Centre of Excellence in Advanced Molecular Imaging, so it's, I guess you gave it a lot of different techniques. We, we, we use light microscopy, we use synchrotron um, science, and actually at the most extreme, if you like, we actually use X-ray free electron lasers, which are these incredible instruments. Um, you know, there's one in America in Stanford, and there's one being built in Hamburg, who are our partners. And these things, if you like, concentrate, um, a, you know, a, a beam of, a femtosecond beam of photons. I think it's been likened to all of the photons that hit the earth from one side of the earth from the sun in one tiny little pulse very very intense pulse as you can as you can imagine at a at a target a very small target and what's left of the target nothing it's destroyed <laughs> so basically it's, it's destructive it's a quick image yeah. but, but critically the information that um that if you like the diffraction information that's released if you like beats the destructive mm, waves yep. so basically it reached the, the detector before the, the and it doesn't get you know so you actually do get the information about what you're looking at so we look across we use all of these techniques within the center to try to understand how um, I mean particularly immune molecules function um, and actually also uh, go wrong hmm. James, immunity is, is your thing, but it sounds, in the way you're describing this microscope and, in fact, the other technologies, that they, they transcend any particular area of science. Uh, do you expect that, the, that you'll have uh, other collaborators or other interested parties that want to come in and say, hey, great new toy, can I play with it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like the, the range of science that this will be used for, both at the single particle cryo-EM and at the cellular level, tomography level, mm. um, across a whole whole different fields. I mean, so for example, our, um, our, the, we're very fortunate to have recruited two um, United States um, scientists, Hans and Dominika Elmland. They work on transcription, and so basically okay. what they're looking at is, you know, how um, the machines that... Um, 
if you like, um, transcribe DNA actually um, actually function, mm-hmm. and so basically um, and, and interact with different parts of um, DNA strands. Okay. So you've got this new cryo-electron microscope. It's one of the few in the world and the only one in Australia. Who gets to go first? <laughs> and and what are you going to look at first? You've got this beast of a machine. What are you going to do first? What's top of the list? Well, pers- personally, I have a protein that I'd love to put on. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't um, done that yet? Are you just going to draw straws? We're still basically um, fine-tuning it, and um, the company who are installing it, FEI, are still basically making sure that it's properly focused and so on and so forth. Um, but there are a number of different projects that um, that will, will go on, and I, I, I actually suspect that it will be kind of luck of the draw. Actually, I mean, we have a, mm. we have we have forty to fifty groups who all want to use use this microscope, and that's really only just the start. And I think that basically we will um, um, we will expand this um, facility such that it'll work twenty four seven, seven days a week. It's designed to work in automation mode, which and produce maybe up to a terabyte terabyte a couple of terabytes of data a day and that actually also means that our computational support is is very important and so we're fortunate at monash to have a massive which is um, a, a, a supercomputer um, designed to um, um, work with imaging data and so basically you know as we sort of expand this the whole the whole vision i guess is that people will be able to come collect data processed and go away with that data while the machine is working mm-hmm. james look it's good to hear a, a good news story at the moment in science we've you know so many cutbacks uh, coming off the top of science from successive governments it's great to hear that these sorts of things these these flagship type of instruments that uh, you know few in the world are still being installed here in australia to, to push science forward thanks very much for coming in and we hope the testing and uh, commissioning goes well and uh, just remember as director you can put your name anywhere in the <laughs> timetabling thanks so much for chatting to us thank you james Wistock is the director of the arc center of excellence in advanced molecular imaging at monash university we're going to play you some more music folks and then we'll be talking ab- about one of the potential applications of this uh, new center with one of James's colleagues who works on immunity. We're back in just a moment. Three. Triple. You're listening to the fabulous 3 Triple R Science Donagogo. It's a science program. The song that we just played was called I Lost Myself by Chase City. Story about you, Chris KP. Yeah, I'm behind the couch. I'll find me later. <laughs> yeah. Now, we have our f- fourth, I don't say that very often, guest in the studio. Today, it's Professor Dale Godfrey. He's um, based down at the Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Dale. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, you're working in this fascinating area of immunity, um, but in particular, um, I should say, with, with colleagues at Monash and some small university overseas called Harvard. Harvard, yes. Never heard of it. Um, <laughs> moving right along. <laughs> about um, the way our skin interacts and, and how we determine you know, whether we're going to be um, affected by something, have an allergic reaction and so forth. So I want to start, first of all, with our skin, because a lot of people think of it as a, as a, as a boundary but it's but it's not really is it no well it it often works as a very good boundary and Mm -hmm. and it does a very important job of keeping bacteria and viruses and other nasties on the outside 
and um, you know that works pretty well most of the time but as you know you get a scratch or a mm-hmm. cut um, pretty soon you have a red painful reaction and, and that's your immune system which is also present within the skin ready for such an event you know and and, and if anything actually gets beyond that barrier the immune system's there and ready to respond mm-hmm. and, and and that's you know that's why you know we can't trust the skin to do the job by itself because things go wrong so, so what about if I, if I touch something that I have an allergic um, reaction to how does that work with the skin because it's not it's not going through a breach in the skin it's just physically interacting with the skin surface well you know you can have a um, you have immune cells that are very close to the surface of the skin some of the molecules can actually penetrate through the skin um, bacteria and viruses which are larger have more trouble getting through mm-hmm. but um, molecules like lipids and um, other proteins and things can actually you know absorb their way through the skin and you can have a reaction through the immune system that resides there okay and what uh, you mentioned the term lipids um, yep. the, I guess these are the, the kernel to, to what we're talking about today to some degree what, what, what are lipids and, and where do we find them well so lipids are, are just one of several different kinds of molecules that the immune system is uh, really looking for and, and it, the immune system patrols our body normally looking for danger and the danger might be bacteria or viruses and it detects these things at the molecular level so it actually scans our own molecules and, and some of the molecules that it's looking at are proteins and others are lipids and lipids are sort of fat molecules really mm-hmm. um, we know quite a lot about how the immune system can see proteins and, and peptides that come from proteins that's been very well studied but mostly the immunology field has ignored the fact that lipids are also really important molecules that the immune system can also detect and that they may be uh, quite important in the response to many different kinds of bacteria and and also cancers which have unusual lipids and plus allergens like peanuts and things you know there's lots of different Mm. lipids that the immune system can react to Hmm. why why has that been the case why have we just left lipids i mean it doesn't sound as good this protein, but why, why have we just left lipids out of the, the picture? It sounds like a, a key component of many, many important substances. Absolutely. I, I think um, it's sort of just, it started out that people started to understand it with the work of Peter Doherty and, and Rolf Zinkenagel as to how the immune system could see peptides that came from proteins, and that's been a major focus. Mm. So a lot of the vaccines and, and um, studies with allergens, they all focus on what are the responses against the, the peptides. But um, we've known that the immune system can see lipids for quite a long time, but we haven't known much about the cells that can respond to them and how the cells actually detect them and that's sort of where my lab and and our collaborators have been sort of focused for a long mm-hmm. time because this is a pretty big hole in our understanding of the immune system that we feel is um, means a lot of opportunities that could come from this if we can understand lipid recognition a lot better mm. now just recently you and your team have uh, had a uh, paper published in the very, very extraordinarily good journal nature immunology and you're you've been looking at this old old molecule called CD1A, which apparently you indicated been uh, known for 30-odd years. Yeah. What, what's the new part of the picture that you guys have just published? Yeah, so we, we've known about... The, the, the world has known about CD1A for a long time, and for a long time it was just thought of as a, as a convenient marker of certain cell types. But its actual function is... Uh, it, it's one of the molecules on the surface of some cells, such as uh, cells in the skin called Langerhans cells. And these are sort of starfish-like cells that are spread throughout the entire layer, all the la- epidermis of the skin. Um, CD1A is a molecule that they use to pick up lipids from the environment and then they present the lipids um, through this CD1A molecule. So the CD1A sort of grabs hold of the lipids and holds it out there for other cells in, in the immune system, such as the lymphocytes. Uh, and then they go scanning around the body looking for lipids that might be presented by this CD1A molecule. 
So CD1A is a molecule that's especially highly expressed in the skin, and, and that's why this is sort of more focused on the immunity in the skin, because CD1A is presenting lipids in skin. Mm. And I guess one of the reasons why being able to detect lipids is so important is because um, pathogens, bacteria, um, make some pretty crazy lipids, don't they? Exactly, yeah. So there's, for example, mycobacterium tuberculosis. Um, a, a lot of the immune response directed towards that organism, which causes TB, actually is directed towards the lipids that come from that bacteria. And, uh, you know, viruses also, while they don't have their own lipids, they modify the kinds of lipids that cells make, and that's also like a warning signal that there's a virus infection. And even cancer, as I mentioned earlier, cancers make some weird and wonderful unusual lipids and that's another way that the immune system may be able to actually recognize and respond to tumors mm. so is it, is it the same cells in your immune system that are detecting and analyzing lipids or are they different cells are they to what level are they specialized well broadly speaking they're um, lymphocytes and, and specifically right. they're called t, t lymphocytes but um, every lymphocyte has its own specificity right. the, its own favorite molecule it likes to target most people are focused on the lymphocytes that target the proteins or the peptide antigens but many of the T lymphocytes actually respond to other kinds of molecules and something like um, 1 to 10% of the human immune system's T cells actually respond to lipid antigens and, and, and that's the sort of the, the area that you know, we know very little about and it's a whole arm of the immune system that is there to be harnessed if we can get an understanding of what's going on. And some of your works involve discovering some of these new lymphocytes in different parts of the body that can, can do this um, surveillance work. That's right. So we, we're, we're now developing the tools and the reagents that we can actually identify these cells and, and study them separately and ask, well, how are they recognising these uh, lipids and other unusual molecules and how might we be able to harness that activity to, use, uh, to come up with better types of immunotherapy that might help uh, you know, develop better vaccines and help treat cancer patients in, in, in new and uh, improved ways. And that was to be my next question, really. At the moment, we've obviously got a certain methodology we use for all our vaccines and, and many of our cancer treatments, which, as you mentioned, sort of is a bit separated from this whole lipid area of research. How, how will we sort of, or, or what pathway will we take now? Will it be about us sort of bolstering those cells up to do more or, or giving them the knowledge to fight things that they, you know, haven't seen before? I mean, you know, we have a whole sequence of events where we've sort of gone through with the standard vaccines will we follow the same paths for, for this sort of lipid approach well um a couple of points some of the standard vaccines actually in, incorporate lipids and people aren't entirely sure what the lipids are doing and right. it's probably partly through activating these lipid reactive cells in the immune system but as this um this sort of information becomes more well established and we get a, a much clearer picture as to what what is it about a lipid that might make it activate the immune system or maybe inhibit the immune system that's when we really start to be able to um Say, well, what if we include this lipid in a, you know, by injecting it into a cancer, into a tumour, and uh, that sort of work's already sort of been tested in preclinical studies and, and coming up with some pretty impressive results. You can activate the lipid-specific immune cells and get some, uh, you know, new responses against cancers, and also, of course, in vaccines where the the bacteria mm. have unusual lipids. If you can include those in vaccines, then you may well come up with a whole new way of targeting the bacteria. Yeah. Now, now, many of our listeners will have heard, you know, on multiple occasions about this impending doom with regard
regards to antibiotic resistance. Is this a possible way out of that problem, do you think? Well, I, mean, I think um, our immune system has a terrific ability to be, to be able to respond to all kinds of different bacteria. Some bacteria develop uh, you know, tricky ways to outsmart the immune system or it's a bit of a battle. Um, anything we can bring to the party to enhance our ability to, to boost our immunity against a particular type of pathogen is going to be um, helpful. Um, of course, other types of antibiotics are also coming online, so hopefully we'll have various tools in the toolkit to fight these infections. Mm, sounds like a good plan. Dale, thanks so much for, for coming on air today and, and chatting with us, and, and congratulations again on, on the fine work, and you know, Nature Immunology is not to be uh, sneered at. It is you know one of the top, probably top five journals in the world, um, as are, of course, your colleagues from Harvard and Monash, so well done. Thank you very much. Professor Dale Godfrey from the Peter Doherty um, Institute at the University of Melbourne, and it's uh, exciting to hear about all these new areas. I, I love it when we hear something about a whole area that hasn't been touched mm. by, by a group before. It's um, always cool. Particularly when it's something that kind of is sort of obvious that we should have been looking at, but we didn't quite know how, or there's a new way of looking at it. You think, oh, that's, yeah, wow, finally. Yeah, indeed. Now, uh, we've got a couple of minutes to go. One of the things I wanted to tell you guys is over the, over the coming weeks, I'm going to be talking about this solar installation because I have to say, you know, as, as a fusion, solar. fusion. <laughs> fusion. Uh, because I have to say, when I, when I first looked into this over the summer, I was like just mind boggled by the sheer amount of information advertising marketing crap that i experienced there was one group that wanted to send some dude around to my house for an hour to talk about it and i thought i've been there before we were roller shutter company and wow. <laughs> couldn't get the dude out but it just you know it was it was interesting actually and and i, I want to talk about why i cho- i'm not going to mention the company i chose but I'm going to talk about why I went with that particular company in the end and the sorts of things, the sorts of technologies they're offering and, and some of that. So over the coming weeks, um, I'll sort of mention some of that, folks, if you're interested, because I think it's one of those things where I honestly did not know where to start mm. with this technology, and there's just so much of it out there, which was a a real problem. But I found a guy on the phone that I liked. That's part <laughs> of it. But, you know, well, you know, someone who didn't BS me. Or at least it so well you didn't realise. Exactly, Chris KP. That's yeah. what I expect. I, I respect that. You know I respect that. I, expect the tal- I respect the talent. You know, you've got, you've got to go with the talent. Look, uh, we've had a fun show today, folks. It's been, it's been a big one. We, um, we were very fortunate to talk to our colleagues down south and very fortunate that the set phone hooked up correctly, which mm. is great. Dr. Crystal, good to see you. Always a pleasure. And we'll see you again. Are you on next week? I think you might be. Yes, maybe. Um, it's very exciting. You know, we're, who knows? We know what we're doing. Dr. Jen, great to talk to you. You too, Dr. Shane. And Chris KP. Good to always be good. Always good to have you in the studio. Liv has been doing our Twitter feed. Folks, we're so close to a milestone in Twitter. If you want to follow us, we'd really appreciate There's it. There's no shame in setting up a whole new you know accounts just to follow us. Oh, no shame at all. <laughs> I'll be doing it later today. We're going to hand over now to the team from Edith, Matt Stedman and Cameron over there, ready to kick up a storm for you guys. Have a great Sunday, and we'll talk to you again next week. Remember, science is everywhere. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.